everybody. Welcome to the Lifetime Training Podcast. And I am very excited today to bring you Miss Nina Teicholz. And she is a author of a book called The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat, and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet. And today we're going to go in depth into dietary guidelines, investigative journalism, and all kinds of things to help you really uncover the truth of you know, what is being demonized in this polarization that we always have in our industry. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Nina, for being on. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Well, you know, I think it would be great, you know, just to spend a couple of minutes talking about your, you know, your background and kind of how you've come, you know, through the years to, to write, you know, your book. Sure. Um, well, I've been a journalist um, for more than 20 years, and um, I had covered a number of different topics. I was a correspondent in South America for uh, National Public Radio. And then I got assigned a series of investigative food stories for a magazine called Gourmet. It was a great magazine. It doesn't exist anymore. But I started to do to look into the food system. And, um, and one of those stories was on trans fats, which at the time, nobody really knew anything about trans fats. I certainly didn't. And this was the early 2000s. And this kind of plunged me into the topic of good fats, bad fats, how much fat should we eat at all? What were, um, you know, everything about dietary fat, because the more I dug, the more I realized we seem to have gotten it just completely wrong on dietary fat. Like what we thought was good was bad. What we thought was bad was good. And this took me down the rabbit hole completely. Um, and I spent almost a decade researching and reading thousands of scientific papers and understanding the field of nutrition, talking to hundreds of doctors and PhDs and specialists and oil chemists uh, who work for industry to write my book, um, which was, uh, it's been out for a while now, but it, I think it still is maybe um, the easiest way to really understand the whole story. It really tells the story like of how we got into the mess that we are in today in terms of terrible, you know, epidemics of diet related diseases and how our government policy, our our policies, official policies on nutrition sort of got us here. How do we get into this? Um, so the economists called it a nutrition thriller. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think that was possible. But um, but anyway, I mean, I, I have since been um, writing that book. I've also founded a nonprofit called the Nutrition Coalition, which works specifically on trying to bring science to our nutrition guidelines. So maybe we'll get into that and talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. And, and thank you for that backstory. So, you know, it, I'd love for you to go into, you know, what do you feel based on everything that you've spent, you know, the last, I don't know how many years, 10, 15, 20 years uh, researching, what do you feel the Americans need to know about the dietary guidelines themselves and why should they care? That is such a good question. Because when I started out, even after writing my book, I thought, who cares about the dietary guidelines? It's on some .gov website, and I don't never look at a .gov website. So what, do, what does that matter to me? But then as I started researching, I realized how vastly influential they are. And in fact, I came to the conclusion that they are the single most uh, powerful lever on what Americans think is healthy and actually what they eat. So the guidelines... They are downloaded to 
an amazing array of programs and people. So virtually all healthcare practitioners, your doctor, your nurse, your dietitian, your nutritionist, they, the guidelines are like their Bible and they're just downloaded through their professional associations to follow the guidelines. So when you go to your doctor and you think you're getting the doctor's advice, you're just getting the guidelines. They get a half a day of nutrition training in medical school and that's what they learn. And then all, you know, the military follows the guidelines. Um, all hospitals, all prisons, all school lunches, all the feeding programs for the elderly, for women and infant children, uh, you know, all of this is following the guideline. All of the government's nutrition programs follow the guidelines and they impact one in four Americans. 25% of America is impacted by these programs. Your child at school, your, your elderly relative in a nursing home, everybody is eating the guidelines. Um, and then food manufacturers also follow the guidelines. So they want their products to be considered healthy by the guidelines. So they develop products to, you know, to make sure that they can get a healthy claim or all of that depends on the guidelines. And in fact, when the guidelines first came out in 1980, all cattle was bred to be leaner. The reason we have dry, tasteless pork today is because all everything became leaner. The whole food system shifted to respond to the guidelines. And that's what we have today. So even though you think you're not impacted at them, they, through their many tentacled arms are, are reaching you. Yeah. And you know, I was, I was looking through the book and and a couple of things that popped out is, and you said when the low fat, low cholesterol diet was first recommended to the public, um, you know, by the American Heart Association, I believe is in 61, that roughly one in seven adult Americans were obese. Now we're here 40 years later and now we're one in three. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, so it's a little bit higher than that, actually. It is. Yes, it's closer to 43% of Americans have obesity. 43%. And that number is up to, I think it is over 50% for African American women. So any kind of minority group has higher rates of obesity. When the guidelines came out, the obesity rate was below 16 or 17%. And and actually, if you look at the at the obesity rates in America, like going along, let me do it your, your way because you see the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> We're going along like this. 1980, the dietary guidelines start, and there's a sharp upward tick that has just continued on up ever since. Wow. And it's because although the American Heart Association did come out first with this advice in 1961, as you said, it didn't have the power of the federal government behind it. It's precisely because the guidelines move all regulations, the entire federal government, all food, the whole food system, that it was so powerful to change our food supply and what we eat starting in 1980. Wow. The obesity epidemic. Wow. And then, you know, there was also something talked about the Women's Health Initiative that was a trial that enrolled, I believe it was close to 50,000 people in 93. And it was, you know, can you you tell the audience a bit about that and what the outcome was? Well, this is a crucial piece of information because what we hear from our um, experts, and this is sort of the sort of the um, medical dogma out there, is that if only people followed the guidelines better, then we would all be healthy. It's a question of we're all failing. We don't adhere to them properly. That is their argument. Um, and most people believe it. So What's so important about this clinical trial, the Women's Health Initiative, is it was the biggest ever test of the dietary guidelines. And it came along 
Um, actually, the government was prescribing the dietary guidelines and telling everybody to reduce fat and saturated fat already for more than a decade before they thought maybe we should test this in a randomized controlled clinical trial, which is this level of evidence you should have to show, you know, before implementing a nationwide policy, but they didn't. So they had to do this like significant catch up to show that what they were recommending was correct. The Women's Health Initiative was on 49,000 women and followed them on average for eight years. It was funded by the National Institutes of Health. It cost $700 million. It was powered to look at cancer outcomes, which are the hardest to uh, evaluate because you really have to have a very large grouping and follow them for a very long time. And at the end of that experiment, in 2006, the results came out. A diet that was the dietary guidelines, they literally gave them a copy of the guidelines the subject successfully lowered their fat intake, their saturated fat intake, their red meat intake. The results, no impact on any kind of cancer. They looked at ovarian, breast cancer, colorectal cancer, um, prostate cancer. No effect on it, no ability to protect against those cancers. No protection against heart disease. No protection against type 2 diabetes. And I think the average weight loss was like a pound over eight years. So no protection against obesity. And this was not the only trial to be conducted. There were two other trials, at least that I know of, that were conducted in that time on Boeing employees in uh, Seattle that had the same results. No protection against heart disease or obesity or type 2 diabetes. And these studies found that the more people lowered their fat, that they actually worsened their heart disease risk factors. That is, this is a cause of a cause and effect, right? A causal effect here because they inevitably their HDL, which is their good cholesterol would drop and their triglycerides, which are the fatty acids circulating in your blood would rise. Okay. So these are signs of your worsening heart disease risk uh, in, in, in these individuals. And it is true that your bad cholesterol, your LDLC, would usually rise. But the best you can say is that then this would sort of wash each other out and it had zero effect. But I mean, I think even the dietary guideline expert committees said in their expert report in 2015 that low-fat diets were no longer recommended because they caused, well, dyslipidemia was their fancy word, but because it caused these bad effects on on cholesterol and triglycerides. In fact, they no longer recommend a low-fat diet. I mean, if you go to the website, there is wow. no low-fat recommendation on there. You can you search the words low-fat, and it is not there. But they have never told the American public of this vast change. You know, they've been they have never really announced this huge change in dietary advice wow. to the public. And if you go and you look very carefully at their detailed tables, you know how much what percent fat is in the um, in their guidance, it is actually, it's still 20% to 35% of calories from fat is what they're recommending. And that is really almost exactly the traditional definition of a low fat diet in the scientific literature. It would be like maybe 20 to 30, 30% or 30, but it has been as high as 35%. So, I mean, they're still de facto are recommending a low fat diet. And, and you know, from your perspective, why? You know, why are they doing this? Well, that's such a good question. <laughs> I mean, there are many answers to that. And I think the most charitable one is that is that most people, when they've been 
schooled in a certain way of thinking for for decades that it's very hard to change your thinking. It's a kind of cognitive dissonance that becomes extremely difficult. Um, I think that also institutions, once they have dedicated themselves to a certain policy, become uh, they they there is no incentive for them to change. There are serious costs to flip-flopping on the public. You lose your credibility. We're at a time when the, the, the credibility of experts is under sort of assault or so you don't want to be changing your advice and and diminishing the reputation of your institution. It is also true that uh, this the USDA in particular, um, but also HHS, they're supported by all kinds of industries that are have come to like feed off of these guidelines. You know, imagine they drive just the school lunch program. I mean, if you get a contract to like say PepsiCo does to provide school lunches or parts of school lunches, those are huge contracts. The USDA spends up to a hundred billion dollars a year on these nutrition assistance programs, including something like school lunches. So these are huge contracts and there's a kind of symbiotic set of relationships that now exist with the USDA and these food companies. So like Domino's pizza, they have a lunch program where they have something like smart slices and they serve it. They have a, they have like a partnership partnership with USDA and they serve that to kids all across the nation. It is one of those things, you know, Lifetime has a Lifetime Foundation. I don't know if you knew this, but it's basically to go into schools and and revamp their lunches. And it's it's crazy, obviously, the resistance. I mean, we've been successful, you know, in, in a good amount of areas, but it's still the resistance behind it is 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 crazy. Well, I'm so proud of you for doing that. That's wonderful that you're doing that. But you should know you're up against not just little food companies. These are Nestle and Unilever and PepsiCo and Mars. I mean, they're huge multinational companies that have the lock on these government contracts and partnerships, as I said, with USDA. So it's, it's extremely hard to back out of those. Wow. Well, you know, the, the other thing is you were going back and you were talking about dietary fats and cholesterol and, you know, through some of the studies that I've gone through, you know, and, and, I was an athletic trainer, biology major, but you know, I, I didn't learn this stuff there for sure. It was after the fact that I went through a, it was called functional diagnostic nutrition course. And they talked about the steroid hormone pathway and it was just the sex and stress pathways. And in the precursors to both of those being, you know, LDL specifically, you know, your, your triglycerides, and those are the things that make those hormones. So it's, it blew me away that I could understand this thing in, you know, a a full day lecture on it, but yet it's not talked about or just completely dismissed by the the medical doctors, where if you take those things out, your hormone levels are going to be all out of whack and your stress is going to go up and you have nothing to combat that stress. So it's just, it blows me away the people that start to talk about, you know, dietary fats and, and, and cholesterol and all of those things being such the big issue versus the inflammation. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's really, there's no coincidence that the people who are talking about this science are not squarely inside the system. I mean, I'm a journalist. I've now dedicated 20 years of my life to just researching this. You came from the train, you know, background and training And that means that we haven't come up through the ranks of nutrition science and we are not, we don't need to get grants from the NIH to do our work. And all of that has a bearing on our ability to be independent thinkers. 
to really a- address this material with an independent mind and not have no, we don't have a thesis advisor. We don't have a superior, you know, in the department. We aren't hoping to get tenure in our department. So, and all of those things, as I really explore in my book, I mean, in, in quite dramatic ways, the ways that scientists are steered away from certain subjects and then they are directed towards other subjects because they simply can't get funding. They don't get invited to conferences. They can't do science if they are going down a path that is not considered part of the orthodoxy of mm-hmm. nutrition science. And of course, doctors, they follow a curriculum that I think that has been heavily influenced by the drug industry. So their nutrition is not, the drug industry has no interest in how nutrition can, can help combat chronic diseases because they have a bunch of pills and devices yeah. and surgeries that do that. And nutrition doesn't make any money for them. Yeah. Wow. So it is a sad reality of of, of being a, a medical doctor that that you that there's just no curriculum for it. Yeah, you know what what would you say? You know, obviously, more recently, you're seeing a huge buzz of you know the plant based foods and and what the you know emissions are doing to our environment. Would you yeah. be able to speak to that and, and explain yeah. where that comes from and your thoughts on it? Well, it's obviously pretty complicated. Um, I don't, I'm not really an expert in the environmental angle, but I will just say there that the vegan, um, it's the cost environmentally of illness in the United States, uh, the environmental cost of illness is um, many times greater than the cost of uh, the environmental impact of raising meat. I mean, raising meat, the latest uh, estimates by the EPA under Trump, (laughs) their estimates were that it was uh, only 4% of the total greenhouse gases. Um, And and if you look at the numbers on on sickness, they're just so much greater. So we just have to balance all of that out. Like if it turns out that meat is really important for health, which I think it is as an efficient source of protein without a lot of calories in incredible nutrient density and nutrients you can't get from other foods. Um, well, then we have to really think about what would the impact on health be of taking meat out of the diet. Wow. But there's been an intense focus on veganism for, yeah. let's just go through a few of the reasons. I mean, historically it's the animal rights activists and those groups have been around since the 1970s and they really do not want people eating meat and they have been, they have very aggressive tactics of, of um, suing various um, organizations and Freedom of Information Act. They, they, they're responsible for the Meatless Monday being adopted in New York City. So they're one, um, they are one thread. What um, is that? I, 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 again, I'm from the, I'm on the West Coast now, but what is that? I've never heard of that. Mondays? Have you yeah. heard of them? No. They're a organization that used to be hosted by Tufts University, but no longer is, that is basically a large group of companies that would benefit if meat were off the menu. So grains and pastas and mushrooms and nuts and all these companies. And they have sort of a, they back this group that has a very um, pure front. (laughs) You don't know that it's backed by like 34 companies and they are trying (laughs) to implement a program of meatless Mondays in, well, anywhere they can. So 
in, wow. in any institution, including schools. And they were successful in getting that done in New York City recently. And that was a, pushed heavily by the animal rights activists. Wow. So animal rights activism is one. And another one is, um, is just the companies, as I said, that would benefit from meat being off the table. Uh, uh, and you can see those companies support many, many different groups. I mean, I could list them. I could sit here for the next hour lifting the yeah listing the groups. And then there's, um, I think there is now a new burgeoning force of the, um, the group of companies that are making fake meats and fake milks and soy products and all these things that they see this as a market opportunity. And these companies are some of the most well-funded in the world. And they have, this whole cause has been adopted by the World Economic Forum in Davos, um, and they have since now been adopted by the United Nations. And so that this vegan or near vegan diet is going to be sort of the reference diet for wow. the entire planet. But they see it, and I've read their own internal documents. They say this is an opportunity for new markets for us. You know, the food industry is a relatively low earning industry, but if all of a sudden everything can be made turned into vegan and put a, you know, a green label on it. And there's all this, you can promote it as your way. Patents on it too. Right. I mean, when? there's gotta be patents on certain formulas that they put together. Right. All right. Well, what what we should, we're going to, yeah. you know, yeah. if lab, if we all have to eat lab based meats, which is yeah. Bill yeah. Gates's recommendation. Yeah, exactly. Then, then we are all beholden to the patents of the companies that are making those um, meat replacements. Anyway. So there's, yeah. there's, enormous economic forces behind moving towards a vegan diet that are that are really a little bit scary. I mean, there are numerous Bill Gates is pushing this quite hard. He made 20 billion dollars last year and and he's spending it increasingly um from what I can see on journalism and and you know, news stories and even the journalist watchdog organizations they're contributing to. So the space to Hat for journalists and the media to be scrutinized and be critical of this diet seems to be rapidly diminishing. Man. I'll just give you one other source of all yeah. of pushing us this way, which I think may sound cynical, but I think it's true, which is pharmaceutical companies, again, they they profit from chronic disease. It's it's the the most perfect um, kind of disease for them because it unfolds over many, many, many years. You're taking insulin or you're taking statins or you're on blood, blood pressure medication. I mean, it just is this incredible um, income model for them, revenue model for them. And that if people get healthy, which they can do in a matter of weeks, you can get off blood pressure medication, you can get off insulin in a matter of months, really, if you, if you uh, apply yourself with nutrition, that is a loss for the pharmaceutical industry. So I think that they are invested in prolonging and promoting unhealthy diet. Well, that's great information. And thank you so much. You know, I'd love to dive now into, you know, at the end of the day, if you and in, in, in your team were able to create the new dietary guidelines, you know, or adjust them, you know, what would you, what would you put out there? So that's a good question. I think it would, should be, my group really focuses on the importance of evidence-based guidelines. And I would just, I know it sounds really nerdy, but I think I would want to focus on that for just a second because it's super important that the science be evaluated properly. Like 
Currently, we are prior the guidelines are prioritizing this very weak kind of science that shows associations while completely ignoring the more rigorous science, which are the randomized controlled clinical trials. So there's a lack of methodology in the guidelines that is deeply concerning and not scientific. And we all, I think most people th- like tune out when they hear the word methodology, yeah. but it's like playing a game of football without any rules. Like there's nobody saying, no, you can't, you need to, you need to go forward 10 yards to get a new uh, first down. So you need to have rules in evaluating science. And there are many systems that, that, that are published that provide those kinds of rules, but our government, the USDA, is not following any of those rules, which is why we have guidelines that are not evidence-based. Um, just to give you one example, um, the the in the most recent set of guidelines that were published at the end of December last year, they decided that they were going to exclude all studies on weight loss. Um, they just they said, well, it might be a, an issue that might complicate trying to interpret other kinds of studies, and we don't want weight loss to be a confounder. Is what Anyway, that's not scientific. You can't just say we're going to exclude this huge body of scientific literature. What would a good guidelines look like that would reflect the science? Okay, so first of all, it, the current guidelines advise over 50% of your calories from uh carbohydrates, mainly in the form of six servings of grains per day, half of which must be refined grains, and 10% of calories is sugar. I there, there is no evidence base for recommending any amount of carbohydrates in the diet. It turns out, according to the Institute of Medicine and a great deal of research, that the, rec- the needed amount of carbohydrates for your body is zero. Uh, It doesn't mean you can't eat them. It just means that there should be no obligation to eat them, especially if, for for instance, if you have diabetes, uh, those people that those people with that condition, uh, they are they're intolerant of carbohydrates. They have an inability to process carbohydrates. Uh, That's true of other diet related diseases as well. So I think that uh, there should not be a recommendation to eat six servings of grains a day. 10% 10% of your calories of sugar, uh, there should be a recommendation to, um, first of all, there should be a range of diets because we are a diverse population. Currently, we have a one-size-fits-all solution, and that is not appropriate. People truly respond to diet in really radically different ways. And the other problem with our guidelines is that they currently don't have any data on how to treat people with diet-related diseases. So they're designed for the healthy population. Well, according to estimates on government data, only 12% of our population is metabolically healthy. So the guidelines are for those people. But they really need to, if you're going to have, if they're applied to people in schools and nursing homes and hospitals and the military, they really need to incorporate advice that applies to people with a diet-related disease. That is at least 60% of us uh, now up to 88% of us. A guidelines, they should, they should not have a cap on saturated fats to start with. Currently saturated fats are continue to be capped at 10% of calories. There is now, there are now some 20 systematic reviews or meta analyses looking at the totality of the data on saturated fats. We really got that wrong. And there have been recent papers, one in the journal of the American college, College of Cardiology that was authored by 
a number of scientists in, who included several former members of dietary guidelines expert committees. So these are the people who made the policy saying we got it wrong. We do, we do not think the evidence supports continued caps on saturated fats. That paper was recently recommended as one of the top 100 papers of 2020 by the editor in chief of the American Journal of Cardi um, of the Journal of American Cardi uh, by the editor in chief of that journal. Yeah. So saturated fats, caps on saturated fats, really no longer are evidence based. They never were, but now there's enough research to really document that. And I, and I think one of the things you said, you know, maybe a couple of minutes ago, which is ideal, is there really isn't a one size fits all. You know, how do I use the various different methods, diets, you know, macros to help the person that's in, in front of them? Now, obviously we got to, you know, streamline some of that to make it a little bit easier because a lot of people maybe, maybe won't be able to comprehend that. But I think that's a huge, huge, you know, piece in here that you're trying to, you know, bring across as well. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, people have really different responses to varying amounts of protein, to varying amounts of carbohydrates, varying amounts of fat. I mean, there is an incredible range of responses. What is lacking in our current system is that kind of flexibility. There is currently no low carbohydrate option, which there needs to be, especially for people with diabetes, obesity, heart disease, high blood pressure. There must be a low carbohydrate option in the guidelines so that if you go to a hospital, for instance, and you're diabetic, you can get a meal that is not uh, oatmeal and a piece of toast and orange juice for breakfast. Um, so there needs to be a low carbohydrate option. And even within that, there should be variations in the amount of fat or protein you're eating because that the response to protein and fat, are they vary wildly. But I want to introduce a really important concept that we've sort of lost in the 1920s. Nutritionists thought people really needed to eat in order to obtain all the essential vitamins and minerals for healthy life and reproduction. Those are the vitamins and minerals, all of those nutrients, micronutrients, are what protect us from disease, notably COVID-19. That's why there's a lot of talk about vitamin D and COVID-19. But all kinds of diseases, they boost your immune system. They allow you to have healthy children who grow up with healthy brains and neurological systems. And those vitamins and minerals are current guidelines. If you follow them to a T, you will not get many crucial nutrients, um, including most of the fat-soluble vitamins because there's not enough fat in the, in the guidelines. So constructing a diet, whatever diet it is that you think your, you or your, your clients or whoever will respond to, it's, it's incredibly important that it contain all the essential vitamins and minerals. And some of the ones we don't think about really are choline, which is in the egg, you know, egg yolks are the best source of that. Or vitamin B12, we have critical shortages of vitamin B12 in the American population, especially women. Women are of, of childbearing age and women of almost all ages don't get enough vitamin B12, which is in animal foods um, exclusively. And they don't get enough iron. And that's an interesting topic because the form of iron that is most bioabsorbable called heme iron is in animal foods. It's really in meat and liver. Um, and to try to get it from plant foods, it's just less bioavailable to your body. Um, similarly, that same is true for calcium. 
So eating to reach nutritional sufficiency is a really good principle for for thinking about nutrition and planning a diet. And you know, it, it the back of my mind is it, it keeps ringing as you were speaking here and and just talking about it. it's it's almost as if sometimes these guidelines are made because you know you hear a lot of people on a low fat diet oh it's not sustainable nobody could sustain it well it's because of how addictive the food sugars are and how to get over that those particular things and they're basically playing to those you know those those things and then making it okay and that's why it's bad I, I don't know it just in my mind I kept thinking of you know teach people what they need to know. Yeah. It's, it might be hard at first, especially getting through everything that, that, you know, you have to get through because we've been just ingesting all of these crazy foods. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of biases to overcome. I mean, yeah. I started off as a vegetarian yeah. <laughs> when I was starting researching my book yeah. and it took me a really <laughs> long time to understand that I was not eating well. I mean, I knew I was overweight and I couldn't lose weight. And I, I mean, I wasn't majorly overweight, but I knew that and I didn't feel great. And I would get tired in the afternoon and suffer brain fog. But it's very hard to change something that you've been taught your whole entire life. And, and I think that that is, is difficult for people. It's also, as you say, people say, well, changing your diet to something that doesn't involve so many grains and sugars, you just, it's too hard. To which I say, you know, it's probably harder to live with diabetes, Please. getting insulin all the time and having yeah. to spend your money on that. And if, you know, going to doctors all the time, that is a hard life. Yeah. That's an incredibly hard life. Um, so I just don't know. I think it is hard to give up things that you love. But I will just note something encouraging to people, which is that your palate changes over time. It seems almost impossible to believe. Like I used to be the world's biggest sugar addict. I mean, I would eat like cake frosting out, just like eat it straight. And I would steal my brother and sister's Halloween candy. I mean, I was a terrible sugar addict. And now I can't eat sweet things. And that would have been unimaginable to me. Years ago, but your, your, your desire for th your, your, literally your, your palate changes over time. So yeah. that things that you really liked now you think hmm, yeah. I'm just okay without them. And a critical part of that is getting enough protein and also fat um, to, but mainly protein that provides that satiety yeah. so that you are not hungry and you aren't, it's, it's in a state of hunger when you start to crave those easy, fast, yeah. sugar rich foods. Got it. And, and, you know, you, you mentioned some of this, but if there's anything else, but, you know, I have a question of, you know, how might you recommend or, or how might your recommendations impact the nation's health and economy? And I know you mentioned some of the things around, you know, deficiencies in COVID, but anything else that you can add there? Well, I mean, let's start with COVID. The, the um, condition that is most strongly associated with poor COVID outcomes, hospitalizations, death is, high blood sugars, hyper, hyperglycemia. Mm -hmm. uh, what causes that is chronically high exposure to sugar and things that become sugar once you eat them, which are starches. Um, and also a lot of fruit will do that too. So your ability to not get sick on COVID depends principally on your diet, it seems. Mm -hmm. 
even though we don't hear that message. Well, and, and the other thing too, that I've, I've seen quite a bit, sorry, is, is also the impact of, of sugar and, and insulin on, on cancer and cancer cells and how right. it feeds on cancer as well. Correct. And also there was the first ever clinical trial that came out on Alzheimer's and it showed that a very low carb diet had really a significant impact on the quality of life and Alzheimer's scores, your functioning. Uh, this was the first clinical trial on diet to show this kind of, of regression of disease. And all drugs have failed to address Alzheimer's. So this is maybe our best hope for Alzheimer's disease, which is of course, now epidemic in the country. Yeah. And then you got the, you, you got uh, seizures too, and, and epilepsy too. And you know, so right. it's like, it, just think about that for one second. We just talked about, you know, you know, Alzheimer's, we talked about COVID, we're talking about cancer and all diet related and how it, how it festers. Right. And I mean, let's add obesity, diabetes, yeah. heart, uh, heart disease, disease, high blood yeah. pressure, yeah. hypertension. Diabetes alone costs $350 billion a year. It is the most expensive condition. If And, and there are now numerous experiments that show that you can start to reverse a diagnosis of diabetes within a matter of weeks. And that can be done simply by cutting out sugars and yeah. things that turn to sugar once you eat them. Mm. So it's, it's possible. I mean, and this is one of the biggest expenditures in the U.S. budget. We would have, imagine the money that the government would have uh, to do other things, to help people in other ways, if, if there weren't this enormous drain on the budget and all state budgets. They are primarily driven by these diet-related diseases, not to mention the human suffering that we have when 60% of the population has one or more of these diseases. That's a lot of suffering. I mean, and you think about like it's one thing to suffer as a young woman like I did with an extra 15, 20 pounds, which I thought was like the end of my life. But it's another thing to have your limb amputated. There is an epidemic yeah. of amputation going on now, especially that in means. communities of color due to um, the neuropathy that comes with diabetes. So yeah. it is, um, you know, we have a military that is obese. We have failed to, the military has failed to reach its um, its recruiting targets for the last two or three years because there are not enough fit and non-obese young people to fill its ranks. And people in the military become more obese during their service because the military follows the dietary guidelines and they're told that red meat is bad and pasta is good fuel for energy. So we have an inability to defend ourselves. Um, I think during an increasingly wow. yeah. a time when there's increasing hostility in the world between superpowers. Yep. I mean, we could go on and on. I mean, there's, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> crazy. that's crazy. crazy. There's a lot of good that would yeah. come. It's probably the single most important thing that we can do to truly make our nation stronger. Yep. Healthier, happier. Chronic diseases. They yep. take such a financial and human toll. Uh, and they're, they're a toll to businesses, healthcare costs are through the roost, the cost of insulin. I mean, it's, it's incredible to think about what we could all do in a matter of weeks if the nation were, if we had a collective nutrition experiment on the American people. Wow. You know, one other thing too, I'd love for you to spend, you know, a couple minutes on too is, you know, you talk about trans fats. 
um, in your book. Um, and I'd love for you to kind of give that perspective because those things have been, you know, obviously demonized and love your perspective and what you found. Well, trans fats is how that's, that was my route into this topic. Mm-hmm. Trans fats are created when you take, um, seed oils, they're known to most people as vegetable oils, but you know, canola, safflower, sunflower, um, cottonseed was the original oil. And the oil in its oil form is very unstable, meaning it oxidizes easily. It um, and that creates massive inflammation in the body, and it's um, it creates known toxins when it's oxidized, especially when heated. So the vegetable oil industry back in the early 1900s developed this process to harden the oils. That process was called hydrogenation, and that's what created Crisco in 1911. Right, the first hydrogenated oil. Um, it, they had to deodorize it and winterize it and bleach it white and everything to make it into a food product, but it had previously been used for things like, um, this kind of oil had been used for, um, lubricating machinery, but (laughs) that process, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) Eat it instead. So, um, that process of hydrogenation produced as a byproduct, something called trans fats, trans fats, um, I won't get all into it. You can, yeah. it's a really fascinating story. They raise LDL cholesterol, the, so, the bad cholesterol, yeah. so-called bad cholesterol by a little bit. And that caused the entire food industry and it to, to decide, they didn't decide, they were pushed to decide to get rid of trans fats. So actually right now, as of now in America, there are no trans fats allowed in our food supply. What is the dark side of this story? The dark side is that, by, take, by taking trans fats out, that means you could not use hydrogenation anymore to stabilize oils. So what has happened? We instead use, uh, we have many, many restaurants and businesses and food, sorry, let me just repeat that. So what has happened? Many restaurants, especially fast food chains, have gone back to using just the regular oils, which remember, uh, especially in conditions of heating, like in fryers where you're making French fries, they cause massive uh, oxidation of their, of their um, oils. And that creates all kinds of degre- what's called degraded triglycerides and known toxins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of those enter the food. And when you eat the food, it enters your body and it crosses the blood brain barrier. And those known toxins, they are known to cause heart disease, uh, and massive inflammation, and they are also known to cause cancer. So heated oils are really a toxic problem, and they are they exist, I think, pretty much all restaurants use oils to cook in because they're cheaper, and also we still use them because we're afraid of using the alternative, which would be um, saturated fats like butter, tallow, lard. That is the way, you know, before 1900, that was, ex- those were exclusively the fats that, or almost exclusively the fats that Americans cooked with, the whole Western world cooked with. Yeah. But because they contain higher quantities of saturated fats and saturated fats were considered bad for health, we can no longer use those. I mean, the word lard itself is sort of a buzzword that seems to suggest everything bad. But in fact, those fats are safer, especially for cooking. Um, and is one of the reasons that we need to roll back the limits on saturated fats so that 
restaurants and food uh, companies can go back to using those fats, which are more stable, don't inflame your body and are better for health. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. My last question is, you know, we have a large trainer base that work with, you know, the, the regular everyday person. And, you know, if, if you had, you know, those people in front of you, the trainers, you know, what would you tell them to tell their clients about nutrition? Well, I think everybody who works with people knows that, I mean, everybody has their own style. It's hard to change people's habits. I think that walking people back from grains, especially even whole grains, because once your body absorbs them, they, they, everything turns into sugar. Um, so walking people back from this idea that the best thing they can do for health is to eat whole grains and fruit, which also turns to sugar, trying to back out of that idea is really a helpful one because people really benefit when they, they, they move out of a high carbohydrate diet. Um, and the other key recommendation I think is to go back to using natural fats, the ancient traditional fats that we use, do not use inflammatory seed oils, you know, even canola oil. If you're going to use an oil for a cold purpose, it should be olive oil because that does not have as many double bonds in its molecules, but we won't get into that. But, um, but to go back to traditional fats, butter, ghee for Southeast Asians, uh, you know, coconut oil is, is good. Tallow, lard, if you can, you can get it. Um, those are much more stable and they, I think are an important factor in a, in a healthy diet. So I think that advice alone would be really helpful. And also, I would also say as somebody who has studied in depth, the, all of the evidence on red meat, I think it's important for people to know that there is no rigorous evidence, meaning no clinical trial data to show that red meat or processed meats are bad for health or cause any kind of um, health condition. In fact, wow. there's evidence to the contrary. So, <laughs> um, so we've been really scared on red meat. And as we talked about some of the forces behind that, but, but red meat is a really excellent source of, low calorie protein and all those needed nutrients that you need for health. So, wow, that's great. It's controversial and yes. most probably wouldn't want to touch whole. <laughs> no, but that, that's, you know, we're always trying to be out of the, the game and, and really give evidence-based true science. And, you know, and I think it's, we've adapted it, you know, obviously with movies and different things like that, that are coming out that are bringing plant-based and reduce this. It, it, it's very hard. It's confusing. Um, but when you look at the research, like you have, um, from, from both an investigative standpoint and a scientific standpoint, I, uh, you know, it's been fantastic. So, and sorry, I want to think it's important for me yeah. to mention that I have no industry money of any kind backing me. Mm -hmm. I have been working for a nonprofit organization. We accept no industry money. I have come to this as a journalist from an, as an outsider and have, as I said, brought to it with the vegetarian bias. So I really do not have any conflicts of interest when I come to this material. And as a savvy consumer of nutrition and health news, people need to be aware that many of the sources of their information do have serious conflicts of interest. Um, I'm not saying that I'm better. I'm just saying my information comes straight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, man, I appreciate it. And, and honestly, everyone out there, if you highly recommend, you know, 
checking out her TED Talk, um, which I'll, I'll include that link in the show notes, as well as going and buying the book, The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat, and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet. So I can't thank you enough for taking the time uh, through some of the technical difficulties that we had, but I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed it. And anything else you have to say to the group? Well, it's, I just want to thank you for having me on the show. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. And it's um, great to have a chance to address your audience. 